Next, the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop. After this message. Now that doctors and patients have discovered the many benefits of hemp-derived CBD, Alpine Miracle's Nano Emulsion CBD formula is one of the most bioavailable on the market today. It's 100% THC-free, so you can order it online anywhere in the U.S. Order yours today at alpinemiracle.com. Scientists are just beginning to understand its essential role in maintaining optimal health. Get yours today. Use the code REPORTER and receive 10% off. Don't wait. Get it now at alpinemiracle.com. And now, it's time for the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop. Listen in as Snowden interviews cannabis industry pioneers, marijuana experts, policymakers, medical practitioners, patients, and other amazing individuals with compelling stories to share. It all happens right now. Here's the cannabis reporter, Snowden Bishop. Welcome back to the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. I'm Snowden Bishop, and as always, I'm grateful you're joining us today. According to statistics published in the Internal Medicine Edition of the Journal of the American Medical Association, opiate overdoses claimed the lives of 38,000 Americans in 2015. That's 90 deaths every day that year. More recent research indicates that number nearly doubled with upwards of 64,000 opiate-related deaths in 2017. While some of those were caused by illegal opiates like heroin, most were caused by legal prescription opiates like hydrocodone, morphine, and oxycodone, which are plant-based derivatives of opium. A growing number of deaths can also be attributed to the synthetic opioid drug fentanyl, which is produced in a laboratory. Even methadone, another synthetic opioid, often prescribed to help heroin addicts tolerate withdrawal, can lead to deadly consequences. By contrast, cannabis has no lethal threshold. In fact, since our bodies are equipped with an endogenous cannabinoid system, we have the innate ability to safely process any amount of cannabis, and since it's scientifically impossible to overdose on marijuana, it is far safer than any opiate on the market. Cannabis is also more effective than dangerous opiates for treating chronic pain and inflammation. Researchers are now just beginning to understand how it is far safer and more effective than methadone for also addressing addiction disorders. Ironically, cannabis remains listed among heroin and other dangerous drugs in Schedule I controlled substances, while the opiate epidemic continues to impact thousands of lives. There will come a time when our government will need to acknowledge that cannabis poses zero threat to human health or society at large, and in fact, it's quite the opposite. Prohibition causes far more harm than good. The evidence is mounting from regulation states, which have already seen dramatic decline in opiate prescriptions and dramatic drops in illicit marijuana sales leading to criminal elements in neighborhoods. Studies indicate that opiate prescriptions have dropped as much as 25% in states where it's regulated. There are so many other beneficial attributes to cannabis and why it should be legal and how it's necessary for human health. 
and especially for helping people to wean themselves off of dangerous opiates, which are causing far too many deaths in our country every single day. That's the topic of our show today, and I am very happy to have with me here Dr. Ravi Shandaramani. He's a naturopathic physician and pioneer in the field of integrative addiction medicine. His unique approach to the treatment of chemical dependency and psychological disorders have been refined over a decade of direct clinical experience working with chemically dependent patients. Integrative addiction medicine effectively combines evidence-based conventional addiction medicine with the nurturing and rebuilding modalities inherent in the practice of naturopathic medicine. He's experienced a great deal of success with cannabis as a treatment option for patients who are suffering with addiction and today dedicates a good part of his naturopathic practice to exploring treatment modalities with cannabis in that regard. Dr. Ravi, thank you so much for being here. I truly appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Stone. I really appreciate the opportunity as well. So I am really eager to start talking to you about the work that you're doing with pain management. Tell me a little bit first, though, how you came to be an advocate for cannabis in the first place. Sure, absolutely. My journey into cannabis advocacy, I suppose, is fairly unique. I, uh, I was trained as a naturopathic physician. I trained in Seattle, Washington at the uh, famous Bastyr University, um, completed my training in 2002, and very shortly after that, uh, was licensed in the state of Arizona as a board-certified naturopathic physician, and, and the very first job that I was ever presented with as an opportunity was in the world of um, addiction medicine. I was, uh, I was recruited to work at a, a residential treatment facility in Scottsdale, Arizona, and, um, and that was in very late 2003. And, um, and from that point forward, I've spent my entire medical career to date um, with working, working largely with the chemically dependent patient population, the vast majority of whom are, are also suffering from any, any of a number of mild to moderate co-occurring psychological disorders. And, and so basically, I, cr I had an opportunity um, to create a field of medicine that I term integrative addiction medicine, or I am. Uh, integrative addiction medicine draws from uh, the time-tested protocols of conventional addiction medicine and adds to that evidence-based uh, alternative and, and um, complementary and alternative medicine modalities that are inherent to the practice of evidence-based naturopathic medicine. And in so doing, I was able to draw from the best, if you will, from both worlds in creating a field of medicine that from my perspective, having now treated 6,000 patients over the last 15 years, produces far superior results than either system of medicine could produce on their own. And, um, and so I was, I'm, I'm very well versed in conventional addiction medicine protocols, having detoxed patients for a very long time now. Um, and it always struck me as somewhat problematic 
that that the only long-term tools we had to provide patients um, medically were other opioids. I'm speaking specifically about individuals that are that are opioid uh, dependent or 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 uh, diagnosed with opioid use disorder. It always struck me as somewhat counterintuitive that for these individuals uh, that needed some long-term support, the only support that the medical system could offer them was either methadone or buprenorphine, which are opioids. So we have an individual that was, that's been hooked on opioids and, and their brain and bodies have become quite used to having regular opioids. Um, and those individuals you know, when seeking professional help, um, are left with with two options, and those are also opioids. And so it, it always struck me as a bit counterintuitive. And when we look at the kind of the larger patient population that seeks out professional services for substance use disorders, it always struck me as somewhat, again, um, kind of, you know, not the greatest strategy to have individuals that have been using substances and quote unquote toxifying their bodies and creating kind of, um, you know, increased toxic burden on their organs of elimination, like kidneys and livers and the like. And these same individuals that were, that have been doing this to themselves for any length of time are now in a position seeking professional help. And what does the medical community offer them? That is more, more prescription medicines that must go through those very same and now overburdened and overtaxed organs of elimination, namely, of course, the the uh, liver and kidneys again. So, um, and so while, of course, um, uh, I understand that there's a role for prescription medicine um, in the treatment of substance use disorders and, and co-occurring psychological disorders. From my perspective, having been trained as a naturopathic physician, um, it should it should always be um, paramount in medical decision making that we have individuals on as few of these things as possible at the lowest effective doses possible for the shortest period of time possible, and um, and I think that that validates and kind of recognizes the fact that that they um have these overtaxed systems and organs of elimination now two years ago approximately i had a, a conventionally trained md um emergency room physician reach out to me and ask uh at that at that time what i found to be a very kind of awkward question and she specifically asked if i had ever entertained the use of cannabis therapeutics in bringing individuals off of either prescription opioids or illicit opioids, namely heroin. And at that time I said, no, um, no, I have not. And, you know, I'm, I'm working as a licensed physician um, in a facility that's accredited by the Joint Commission. And so I don't know that they would, uh, A, look very kindly on that, either the state of Arizona or the Joint Commission. And B, it's just not something that I, I was always taught as, as a physician working in addiction medicine that, um, that the use of cannabis was kind of contraindicated because it was psychoactive in nature. And because it was psychoactive in nature, it could potentially 
trigger an individual's reward center in their brain in a manner that caused them to relapse on whatever their original substance of choice was. And I was always taught this early on, and it was probably because the vast majority of my mentors in addiction medicine were themselves in recovery programs and um, members or graduates or participants in uh, 12-step programs. And that's kind of fairly consistent with the messaging that comes through the 12-step world. And so it was only when I was presented with an opportunity to take a look at the literature, the scientific literature, a bit more carefully um, and to truly understand kind of uh, the vast majority of uh, the vast variety, I would say, of, of products that were available to individuals um, in the state of Arizona and other states that had medical marijuana statutes on the books, um, the various routes of administration, the ability to dose fairly accurately where prior, uh, prior to having access to things like edibles and capsules um, and, and THC-infused syrups and the like, uh, basically you had no idea what the patient was getting because the, the only way they could consume uh, cannabis was uh, vaping, smoking, or, or edibles um, where they had no idea what the THC content was and what they were, what they were baking. Um, and so f from my perspective, that was a huge eye-opener. Uh, understanding that, that the, the wide world of 21st century medical marijuana was something completely different than anything that I had understood based on my limited experience, you know, as a college student. And so um, thus began my journey into um, understanding on a very firsthand personal and professional basis with my patients in an outpatient clinic in Scottsdale that not only could cannabis therapeutics be used effectively in getting individuals off of high-dose prescription opioid medicines and or illicit opioids such as heroin, but it kind of resonated more with, with my own personal philosophy as a naturopathic physician, um, not wanting to introduce additional toxic burden onto patients who already had likely overburdened livers and kidneys. And what I quickly learned was those very same prescriptions I would typically prescribe, I would typically write conventional medicines, uh, which could number five, six, or more for individuals coming off of opioids. Um, we call them kind of collectively comfort meds. And these are legend pharmaceuticals that we've used forever in addiction medicine to deal with the symptoms that individuals coming off of opioids typically experience. I very quickly found that um, that both CBD cannabidiol and THC delta nine tetrahydrocannabinol, uh, but more more specifically eleven hydroxy tetrahydrocannabinol, which is the the metabolite um, that uh, is a result of uh, of the, the hepatic first pass effect, or effectively eating eating cannabis. Um, that those two things were perfect substitutes and even superior in many ways to any of those prescription comfort medicines that I would have prescribed historically. You know, you said so many very interesting things there. And I think 
going back to the medical community, the difficulty that we've had over time asking the medical community to embrace this, it's because of all of the things that they've been taught. But I think it's really interesting that a lot of the, the medical professionals that are advising about addiction have themselves been involved in 12-step programs or, and or other recovery programs that absolutely condemn the use of a psychotropic medicine to help get someone off of addictive drugs. And, you know, as, as someone who has seen that that is clearly not the case, how, how do you explain this to uh, fellow doctors who are arguing that point? Well, so the, 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 the literature is, is out there. And I mean, what I would say is first and foremost, I mean, it's a lot easier to make the case for, for uh, providers who are leaning, um, you know, based on their own philosophy in the direction of absolutely no, never. Uh, it's a lot. It's a lot easier to make that argument for cannabidiol than it is for delta delta nine tetrahydrocannabinol or THC. And so, I find that I have the CBD conversation with them first, and and I show them the data on CBD, uh, specifically as it relates to pain, specifically as it relates to attenuating opioid cravings, uh, specifically as it relates to managing post-acute withdrawal symptoms. Uh, which are often the more problematic period of time for individuals in recovery uh, than even the acute or the subacute phase. Um, so I show them data. I mean, if you're if you're attempting to to change a medical professional's mind, the tool of choice is, is objective data, and so. Um, and believe it or not, that data that data exists to the tune of hundreds upon hundreds of peer-reviewed medical journals, both in this country and outside of this country. More like thousands. <laughs> and so, um, I, I, you know, armed with the appropriate scientific literature, uh, I have the CBD conversation first. And once I can get these individuals uh, to understand the science behind the use of, of, of cannabidiol, and um, and my anecdotal firsthand clinical experience, um, I find that it's a lot easier to have the tetrahydrocannabinol uh, discussion, and that they're already open to the notion of cannabis therapeutics because uh, because of the cannabinol, you know, the cannabidiol dis- uh, conversation. Yeah, I I don't know if you've been following the court cases that have been transpiring lately. But I was interviewing a lawyer a couple of weeks back who was representing a gentleman who had been sentenced to three and a half years in prison for carrying hashish, which he purchased legally in a medical dispensary. He was a card-carrying medical patient. And the judge basically uh, declined his appeal on the basis that cannabis, as defined by the criminal code, is is vastly different from cannabis as defined by the medical marijuana law. And so what was really interesting is the fact that he sort of rewrote the definition of what marijuana is and what it means to this law in the state of Arizona. And 
He denied the the appeal and sent the appellant back to jail for another two and a half years. And wow. Yeah. So as as a doctor, when when it comes to you know dealing with these laws and and the other thing too, you mentioned CBD and how it's much easier when you really want to convince someone that there really is no danger in this to approach it from the CBD side of things is is a very good idea. However, the DEA a year and a half ago or so actually gave CBD its own class within Schedule 1. It gave it its own uh, numerical code, I should say, within Schedule 1. And there's been debate all over the industry on the legal side of things as to what that really means. And then the state of California is actually putting restrictions now on CBD uh, in terms of their interpretation of the FDA rules according to the Farm Act of 2014, despite the fact that hemp was was basically legalized in the newest farm bill, which is the Agricultural Improvement Act. So there are all these complex rules and legislation and court judgments that are all conflicting with one another. And if you were to have any one of the policymakers in an office to talk to them face to face, what would you tell them about this? Well, I would tell them fairly unequivocally, and I've done this. I mean, I've been on camera and 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 have, uh, in no uncertain terms, um, said, you know, Governor Ducey, I think this represents. An oper- a window of opportunity for the state of Arizona to take the lead on this. Um, given our opioid epidemic statistics, which uh, I'm very thankful are made publicly accessible through the through the ADHS website, um, I said, "How uh, wouldn't it really be something if if the state of Arizona could take it one step further and acknowledge?" the therapeutic role of cannabis specifically in the management of opioid use disorder, which by the way, other states are considering. Um, so it's, this is not a, a novel concept by any means, by any stretch. However, I think it, I think it would speak volumes for state legislators to include opioid use disorder as one of the qualifying conditions on the medical marijuana um, certification statute. Um, from my perspective, if I had the opportunity to have the ear of one or more state legislators, I would be remiss if I didn't talk about my direct patient experience with individuals, including some of our veterans, by the way, who, uh, as a result of injuries sustained in a career of service to this country, um, found themselves in a position of being maintained on op- on prescription opioid doses in excess of 300 morphine equivalents, which could easily kill several ele- elephants. Um, these individuals are among the, the, the tens of patients. You know, I, I treated 60, 70 patients um, that were effectively brought down and off, in many cases, their high-dose prescription opioids because they had access to medical marijuana. And if you ask these patients in their own words to describe how this successful effort was different 
from any failed historical effort they had previous to this one, they would tell you that the resounding difference, in fact, the only difference between the success that was available to them this time and every other historical pursuit to, to either reduce or get off of their opioids was access to medical marijuana, period. And, um, and these very same patients have volunteered to, uh, you know, take on a greater advocacy role in the state because of the experience that they had that they just weren't able to duplicate historic. One of the things I find really interesting is that these veterans are that are participating. I'm sure you've heard of Sue Sisley, Dr. Sue Sisley, and her study with the veterans. Yeah, um, I've spoken to a lot of these veterans that are participating in her study, and uh, I know she's actually looking for more veterans uh, to round out the numbers a bit, but most of the veterans that I speak with who are now advocating for the use of cannabis to help them not only with addiction, but also with their struggle with PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder. And, you know, I, I find it really interesting that so many of them have said that they were on the brink of suicide before someone suggested that they use cannabis. And since using cannabis, a lot of those suicidal thoughts have diminished to the point where their lives feel a little bit more manageable. And mm -hmm. I find that exceedingly interesting. And when you look at the numbers of suicides that are happening around the country and, and sadly, you know, so many public figures are also part of this trend of suicide. And then you consider the side effects that are required to be read on air whenever a pharmaceutical company is advertising their product to to consumers. They have to list out all of these side effects. And I'm just mesmerized when I listen to a 60-second commercial and 40 out of those 60 seconds are the side effects. And one of the side effects in most that I see happens to be, suicide. be suicidal thoughts. Yeah, and and I mean, as a physician, it, it must just be boggling your mind as to how a drug can be approved for consumers when death and suicidal thoughts are listed among the mandatory disclosures <laughs> of side effects. When and, and yet cannabis has very, very few side effects and none that are fatal, mm -hmm. you know, with the exception of someone being so inebriated they can't drive and, you know, managing to kill themselves in a car accident. Marijuana hasn't really killed anybody. So <laughs> it leaves me speechless. What are your thoughts? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, but, uh, you know, this is this is modern medicine and this is I mean, I think the public is largely aware of of how ridiculous um, you know this sounds because since the advent of, of of pharmaceutical ads on television, but the medical community has known this for a long time, and um, and you're absolutely right to find it um, you know asinine that that something that's supposed to prevent suicidal ideation um, 
can cause it. Um, unfortunately, this is this is particularly, uh, you know, been the case for psychiatric medicines for 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 a very long time, uh, far longer than the public is aware of. Certainly, um, you know, I, I would agree with you, and, and I find it. Um, I, 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 knowing a little bit about the about access to the can like what the what the veterans are actually accessing with regards to quality of product in the Sioux Sisley trial, which is being coordinated between the University of Arizona um, and Hopkins in Baltimore. Um, she, she it took her it took her over five years to even get approval to do this study with our veterans. And once she received approval, they only allowed her to use, my understanding at least is that they only allowed her to use cannabis from a single monocrop affiliated to a university that had an agricultural program. And that when third-party testing was done on this monocultured crop, um, the cannabinoid content was inferior to anything that could be grown in a hydroponic, aquaponic, or true non-monocrop, non-monocrop, non-GMO um, setting. And so, even with the inf even with the inferior product, we're getting positive feedback preliminarily from the veterans that have been included in the study, which is the only way that she would be in a position to recruit additional participants in the study. If the overwhelming feedback from the veterans was negative, she would never be allowed to do that. But even with this inferior quality product um, that represents the only way that the, that the government and the powers that be would allow Dr. Sisley to conduct a, a study of this nature on our veterans, we're getting dramatically positive feedback from the veterans included in the study. What if they had access to high quality medical marijuana? What if they had access to the very best quality of medical marijuana? Isn't that what our veterans deserve um, after, the, after their service? Um, I'm, I'm completely an advocate for veterans with PTSD, traumatic brain injury, uh, and the like and chronic pain disorders and or opioid use disorder or frank addiction, having access to not only medical marijuana, but the very best medical marijuana they can access. And, and without a doubt, um, without a doubt, we have, a, we have significant preliminary data on the use of cannabis in psychiatric conditions that are the very same psychiatric conditions that individuals would be placed on antidepressants and antipsychotic medicines for. So I think we'll see, we've seen that we've, we have the tip of the iceberg, and I think that, um, that we'll continue to see some very interesting information come out of studies on individuals um, with, a, with a vast uh, variety of, of psychiatric disorders, of primary psychiatric disorders, that find better outcomes using cannabis-based therapeutics than conventional antidepressants or conventional antipsychotics.
I agree with you 100%. One of the one of the inferior qualities of the the marijuana that she has access to is the level of pathogens, not just the quality of the cannabinoids, and that that must be insanely frustrating for her in doing this study because it's it's hard to think about the poisons that are inside some of the crops in terms of mold and other pathogens, mold, fungus. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I know that they're not using pesticides, or at least I'm fairly certain that they're not. Although, you know what, don't quote me. <laughs> I really don't know. <laughs> but I would think that if they're giving this to someone for medical purposes, they're not, they're not giving them medicine that's been tainted with pesticides by, well, one would hope anyhow. But I, I think it's very interesting. And with respect to mental illness, I, I think that as far as the anecdotal evidence is concerned, there's plenty out there to suggest that it's not going to exacerbate any mental illness. But I've seen people citing studies that say that individuals who have a history of schizophrenia, for example, can fall or or even uh, bipolar disorder can have psychotic episodes when using cannabis. Have you heard this, and what do you think about it? So this is uh, this is yes, I have heard it, and it is something that's that's touted quite regularly by opponents of cannabis legalization as an argument. The fact of the matter is that. Uh, generally speaking, what we know is that in, in a, a young brain, that is to say a, a, a brain that is still developing, which, by the way, continues through adolescence, um, in these individu- in individuals whose brains are still developing, uh, i.e. adolescents, um, that have exposure to modern medical marijuana that has a cannabinoid, a THC concentration that's significantly um, larger than what, um, than what their parents, for example, would have been exposed to. Um, the higher concentrations of cannabis that are found in, in modern uh, medical marijuana in a in a cannabis naive brain that is still developing for a subset of those individuals that likely have some genetic predisposition that exposure even even um a, a minimal degree of exposure that is to say use of use of the pro, use of cannabis products a handful of times given that the potency is is drastically different than what was available to their to their parents or their parents' parents, um, and their brain is still developing, um, there is a slight increase in the likelihood in individuals that are genetically predisposed predisposed to uh, psychotic episodes. And for me, okay, I mean, what, the, quite, the next logical question is what, what to do with that information. From my perspective, adolescents shouldn't be Adolescents 
um, you know, 12, 13, 14 years old shouldn't be smoking medical marijuana grade cannabis anyway. And so, um, so in these individuals that, you know, a subset of which found themselves uh, in a situation of frank psychosis, yeah, uh, absolutely. There was genetic predisposition. They had access to something they shouldn't have had access to. Um, probably used it improperly. Um, you know, under the influence of of peers, perhaps that were older than them with more experience, and without the genetic predisposition to psychosis. And as a result, they found themselves in a in a pickle. And um, and absolutely, that risk ex- exists for those for those individuals. And does it mean that 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 when that used as the as a as a primary argument by the opposition of cannabis legalization um, should hold water for legalization as a whole, um, either on a state by state basis or, or or nationally? I don't think so. But what wouldn't the same apply to other? psychotropic substances like alcohol and opiates other psychoactive absolutely and tobacco and nicotine which is perhaps among the worst of the worst yeah because i i think that um any any young developing brain that is exposed to anything that is mind altering at all mm-hmm. would have, i would think it would have the exact same effect so what you know so that sort of diminishes the argument against cannabis when alcohol is clearly legal and available i mean anybody under the age of 21 can purchase it if they're innovative enough <laughs> you know they have access to it mm-hmm. yeah not to mention that the that the medical community um, particularly, particularly the mental health community, the psychiatric or the the adolescent psychiatrist and pediatric psychiatrist community, uh, don't have a whole lot of trouble exposing those young minds to prescription amphetamine, right? Uh, in the way of Adderall and Vyvanse and Ritalin. So, um, absolutely. I mean, I think you know an argument that argument does again. It does not. It doesn't hold. A lot of water for me specifically as it relates to um, a primary argument against legalization. Yeah, and interesting you should mention Ritalin as well. I mean, essentially, isn't that equivalent to like meth? <laughs> well, Ad- I mean, Adderall, Adderall, and Vyvanse are are, um, are mixed amphetamine salts, right? So, uh, so these medicines are are unequivocally amphetamines. Speed. Uh, Ritalin is also speed, but it's not, it's not amphetamine. It's not, it's not based on the amphetamine molecule, but it's very close. Yeah. I remember when I was first doing research on cannabis and started looking into some of the old advertisements for tinctures and that sort of thing. And I, I ran across this one advertisement that was for cocaine for teething babies and I thought that was really interesting because plant-based medicine was really a lot more acceptable before any of the different prohibitions, even before alcohol prohibition. You know, a lot of the plant-based medicines were a lot safer and a lot more, they were a lot more forgiving on the liver and the kidneys, obviously. But mm-hmm. 
yeah, it's it's amazing how how the pharmacopoeia has evolved over time, and that synthetic medicine has completely eradicated the use of plant-based medicine and the plant-based medicine that would compete with those pharmaceuticals has obviously dominated <laughs> been dominated by the pharmaceuticals it's it's crazy but mm -hmm. in your experience as a naturopathic physician when studying herbs and plant-based medicine are there other plant-based medicines that you see would be equally as, as important as cannabis is that have been sort of suppressed by the pharmaceutical industry? No, there's, I mean, I don't think I'm, when thinking about kind of Western botanical medicine, I don't think that there's anything that comes close to being as threatening to the pharmaceutical industry as cannabis. Uh, in fact, I would, I would, I would be hard pressed to think of a single uh, plant that would come close to being as threatening because of the, of, I mean, it's, there's such broad applications for this, for this plant, um, that, that overlaps with so many different categories of pharmaceutical medicines that, um, that it really, it really, it really represents a significant threat to the bottom line for not only a variety of pharmaceutical companies and their still patent protected medicines, but also for big alcohol, which, which stands to lose significantly with regards to the bottom line um, in the face of, 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 uh, of cannabis legalization. In fact, my understanding is that um, it was big alcohol that largely thwarted the effort for uh, for Arizona to pass an adult use statute on its first go around. Yeah, in fact, I think the alcohol lobby gave nearly five hundred thousand dollars in that campaign against Proposition Two Hundred Five here in Arizona, and they've been behind a lot of the efforts against in a number of the states that have attempted to get it on the ballot anyway dissuading the public. There are so many others too. I mean, INSYS was a big contributor as well. They have a factory here in Arizona, it's my understanding, and they, among other pharmaceutical companies, put a lot of money into the anti-205 campaign. And I think that they're also behind the prosecutors who actually wound up prosecuting the gentleman that I was talking about earlier who's back in jail now for another two and a half years for carrying medical marijuana that wasn't flower that you could smoke. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, unfortunately, I'm getting the signal that it's time for us to wrap this up. Thank you so much, Dr. Ravi. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you for having me, Stone. I really appreciate the opportunity as well. So as we bring yet another show to a close, once again, I'd personally like to thank my guest, Dr. Ravi Shandaramani, for sharing his insights and knowledge with us today. If you'd like to learn more about the work that he's doing, please visit us online at thecannabisreporter.com. Click podcast to find today's episode. And there you will find his biography and information about the work that he's doing and links to his website. We have so many others to thank. First, I'd like to express our gratitude to our radio sponsors, Terra, Alpine Miracle, and Canisphere. We certainly couldn't be doing this without you. 
I would also like to express our gratitude to Eric Goodall, composer of our theme song, Evergreen, and the team here at The Cannabis Reporter for always making us shine. I'd also like to send a shout out to our programming directors at XRQK Radio Network and Society Bites Radio for distributing our show. And last but not least, thanks to all of you for listening. I'm your host, Snowden Bishop, inviting you to join us again next week, same time, same place, for another episode of the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. Until we meet again, be safe, stay informed, share what you've learned, and make it a great day. You're busy running around from work to kids to evening events. Healthcare shouldn't be adding to your daily running around. Simplify your healthcare with Helterra for only $15 per month per individual or $18 per month per family with up to nine kids. By the way, you can eliminate doctor office visits with 24/7 access to doctors via phone, video, or the mobile app. Not only do you get prescriptions filled over the phone, but save up to 85% on those prescriptions. This is a supplemental plan and not insurance. Healthcare made easy. Helterra.com. Now that doctors and patients have discovered the many benefits of hemp-derived CBD, Alpine Miracle's Nano Emulsion CBD formula is one of the most bioavailable on the market today. It's 100% THC-free, so you can order it online anywhere in the U.S. Order yours today at alpinemiracle.com. Scientists are just beginning to understand its essential role in maintaining optimal health. Get yours today. Use the code REPORTER and receive 10% off. Don't wait. Get it now at alpinemiracle.com.